Moses and his army of Israelites are cornered. With nowhere to run but into the waters of the Red Sea, Pharaoh is confident that he has his liberated workforce trapped once again. The people themselves have no reason to think otherwise. They complain to Moses that they were better off as slaves in the brickyards than dead in the desert. Moses has no idea how God is planning to save the day, but by now he knows enough about God and his affection for the Israelites to buy time until an intervention of some kind manifests itself. He tells the Israelites to be quiet and stand their ground, an all but impossible task with the might of the world's most powerful army closing in on them at the speed of galloping horses. Moses assures his people that the Egyptians they can see thundering towards them are no threat. They will never see them again. God will fight for his own people, he says. Exodus doesn't mention Moses crying out to God while remaining calm for the benefit of the Israelites, but he is clearly desperate for information and help. Meanwhile, God appears utterly unruffled by Egypt's advance. He tells Moses off for even asking him to intervene and orders him to raise his staff over the waters of the Red Sea. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible, episode 19, The Great Ocean Road. Thanks again for listening and welcome back if you've been on the journey since the train left the station back at the beginning of Genesis. These are the good times as far as exciting content goes. Full disclosure, there will be times ahead where the Bible gets somewhat repetitive and the momentum and adventure grind to a hard stop. So let's enjoy the adrenaline while it lasts. Regulars will know that this is the Bible minus the religion. Controversial as it may seem, my belief is that the Bible is for everyone, not just religious people. I'm just amazed at how little that many religious and non-religious alike actually know about it beyond the book's most famous stories. Talking of which, we're about to get up close and personal to one event that stands head and shoulders above most of the Bible's other famous stories. So roll your trousers up and grab your water wings. We're heading for the sea. According to God, the waters of the sea will part, allowing the Israelites to pass over on dry land. God says this quite casually, as if carving a channel through a large body of water is nothing out of the ordinary. He adds that he will make the Egyptians resolved to chase after the Israelites with all their military hardware, and doing this will bring him glory. How exactly, he doesn't specify. Exodus describes the presence of the angel of God a character readers have met before. Most notably, he's among three visitors who drop in on Abram and Sarai at Mamre, shortly before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's unclear exactly who the angel of God is, especially as Christians believe in what the church describes as the Trinity, God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This fourth incarnation, who is exclusive to the pages of the Old Testament, suggests that God is four persons, not three. Some believe that the angel here is simply the pillar of cloud, which is also in place ahead of the Israelites. But the writer is clear that the angel is separate to the cloud and stands in full view of the people before stepping back. The cloud also retreats, but remains as a defensive barrier between Israelites and Egyptians. 
Throughout the night, the cloud casts darkness on Pharaoh's army while illuminating the Israelites, and so the two camps remain separated. Undaunted by the seemingly unpassable ocean that stretches in front of him, obscured from the Egyptian army by the pillar of cloud and lit up like it's daytime, Moses holds up his staff. For the rest of the night, a strong wind creates a path through the sea and the Israelites walk across dry land with a towering wall of water on either side of them. The Egyptian chariots charge after them and Exodus describes how God looks down from the pillar of fire and cloud, which appears to be the same pillar which simply changes format depending on the time of day. From this vantage point, he is able to throw the Egyptian army into confusion. He jams the chariots' wheels so they can no longer be driven, at which point the military leaders lose their nerve. The freakish supernatural phenomenon of the cloud, fire and parted sea plays with their minds and, convinced that God is rooting for the Israelites, they urge one another to turn back. At daybreak, and with all the Israelites on the other shore, God tells Moses to raise his staff once more so that the waters that piled up to let them cross will tumble back and swamp the Egyptian army. The fleeing Egyptian soldiers are overwhelmed and swept into the sea and there is not a single survivor. As the dead wash up on the beaches where the Israelites have regrouped, the people appreciate the power of God. They fear God and they trust him as he appears to be on their side. The day's events also cement their trust in Moses to lead them. They are now free from slavery and out of Egypt and ready to form their own nation in their own land. The Red Sea crossing is a pivotal moment in Jewish history or folklore if you're not religious. This is an event that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. It is sung about in the Psalms and the first Christians of the New Testament are frequently reminded of this epoch-changing event. The Red Sea crossing is used to demonstrate God's determination to rescue his people and form them into a special nation, as well as his ultimate power over creation. No sooner have the Israelites successfully reached dry land than Moses and Miriam burst into song. The chariots of the Egyptians are buried forever and Moses can't hide his joy, giving thanks to God through the medium of music. Euphoric, the Israelites' leader describes how God hurled horses and drivers into the sea. He paints God as the strong defender who has saved him. He is the God of his ancestors and should be lifted up and praised. Moses sees God as a warrior who has thrown the best military personnel that Pharaoh can muster into the ocean where they have sunk like stones. According to Moses, God's majestic right hand has shattered the enemy. Like a wrestler, he threw his opponents to the ground while his anger consumed the Egyptians like fire blazing through dry stubble. Simply by breathing, God was able to part the waters, Moses sings. He launches into poetic description. The surging oceans rise up like a wall while the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Moses describes the arrogance of Egypt and their boast that they would overrun the Israelites and divvy up the spoils. Yet the sea covered them and sank them and their empty threats forever as if they were made from lead. He wants to know which gods are like God and it is clearly a rhetorical question. 
His words cannot hide how grateful and awe-inspired he is by this incredible display of power that rescued him and his people. The adoration continues with Moses eulogising over God's holiness and splendour and his ability to work miracles. Simply by raising his arm, an entire enemy army has been engulfed. Moses is now certain that God's unfailing love and strength will lead to everyone reaching the land which he has set aside for them. It is almost as if Moses is having his own conversion moment. It's as if prior to this, everything that God was telling him was academic, and now he has experienced it and lived it, and he is all but overcome. Moses delights in the thought of other nations going weak with fear when they hear what God has done, believing that the tribes of Canaan will melt away as terror and dread overpower them. Nations will be petrified. Exodus describes them as still as a stone, allowing Israel to pass through on its way to its spiritual home. As if imagining the future, Moses describes the rugged terrain of Canaan as the mountain which they will inherit and sings about the sanctuary made by God for his earthly home, a suggestion that appears to preempt the Jerusalem temple. Moses is convinced that his God will live forever. His joy and relief that God has a purpose for his people and wants them to survive and thrive is almost overwhelming. For the first time in the Bible, God is referred to as a king, as Moses shouts, the Lord reigns forever and ever. The song concludes with a brief resume of events. When Pharaoh's army entered the sea with all their chariots and horses, God made the water swallow them up, yet allowed the Israelites to cross on dry land. So far, Moses has been singing alone, but now his sister Miriam picks up a tambourine and joins in a chorus with all Israel's women. God's name needs to be lifted up as he has hurled horses and drivers into the sea, they sing. Moses' outpouring of praise is known as the Song of the Sea, and Miriam and the women possibly sing their chorus throughout, a technique known as antiphon. This is Israel at its most joyful, and it's not until King David's reign some 250 years later that the vibe is even close to being this high. The Egyptian threat has been neutralised, and now the Israelites are in search of water, not something that is in plentiful supply in the desert. Three days after their epic journey through the sea, the Israelites enter a wilderness known as the Desert of Shur, yet another Exodus place name that fails to appear on any modern map. The mass of people are most probably now in Sinai. This triangular wedge of land between Africa and Arabia is surprisingly small given how long Moses and his ragged band of Israelites spend in it on their way to Canaan. At just 230 miles north to south and 150 miles at its widest point east to west, Sinai is both mountainous and arid. The territory of Midian is believed to have encompassed some of the peninsula, and so Moses will at least be slightly familiar with its terrain, having looked after his father-in-law's sheep here. The first oasis that greets the wanderers is called Mara, but the water here is too bitter to drink. Much grumbling ensues as the people lay the blame for the setback squarely at Moses' feet. Moses is most likely to feel as broken as everyone else. After the euphoria of watching the Egyptian army wash away, they now face a very real risk of death by dehydration. 
According to Exodus, Moses cries out to God, who shows him a lump of wood, which, when thrown into the water, makes it perfectly drinkable. God uses the opportunity as a teachable moment. If these people listen to him, please him and obey his laws, he won't bring down on them the kind of plagues that he has just used against the Egyptians. He may have brought about disease and death on an immense scale, but he assures the Israelites that he is actually a healer. Not only is this a huge relief to everyone, the next station stop is Elim, an oasis with 12 springs and 70 trees, and which to the thirsty masses must seem like paradise. The Elim Pentecostal movement takes its name from this desert watering hole, as it was thought to be a suitably refreshing name for a church revival. Marah, with its dirty wells meanwhile, has no churches named after it. The mass of Israelites moves on from Elim to a wilderness which sounds like something straight out of the Pilgrim's Progress, the Desert of Sin. The name most likely comes from the same word as Sinai. However, cabin fever appears to have set in with the Israelites, who now can only see Egypt with misty-eyed nostalgia. They moan at Moses again, grumbling that they had plenty of meat to eat back home. Better to have died back there than starve here in the desert, they tell him. Without any shops or cafes in which to buy food and their supply of unleavened bread used up, the desert wanderers are in genuine danger of starving to death. In the book, God promises Moses that he will rain down bread from heaven, which probably just means the heavens, rather than the dwelling place of God which Christians understand the name to mean. The bread is as much a test as it is food. God's orders are that everyone is to gather enough for the day once a day, and that on Fridays there will be twice as much to cover the following day, which is a rest day. God tells Moses that he wants to see if the people can follow these simple instructions, no doubt to discover if they are compliant or determined to go their own way. Moses then shares what is going on with the rest of the Israelites. They are about to experience another miracle, he tells them, and this evening they are going to appreciate that it was God who brought them out of Egypt. In the morning, they will see exactly how glorious God really is when he proves that he has heard their moaning. Clearly tired of the aggro that he is having to deflect, Moses tells his compatriots not to shoot the messenger. God will prove who he is when he produces meat for them to eat for their evening meal and bread for their breakfast, he says. And if they have a problem, their problem is with God. Using his brother as a mouthpiece, Moses tells everyone to assemble as God knows that they are unhappy with how things are working out. As Aaron addresses the masses, God appears dramatically in the cloud and announces that everyone will have meat to eat in the evening and bread in the morning. When this happens, they will all understand that he is God and that he is on their side, he promises. That evening, the camp is covered in quail, small pheasant-like birds that the Israelites can kill and eat. The next morning, the dew evaporates, leaving behind thin, frost-like flakes on the ground. Moses explains that this is bread which God has supplied for them and that everyone should gather what they need for everyone in their tent, around three pounds per person. The bread is known to the Bible as manna. The name manna has created a lot of debate amongst Bible linguists, some of whom have suggested that it sounds like what is it in Hebrew. 
However, it appears that there was some confusion in early translations of the Old Testament and that manna might actually be a Babylonian word that means gift. The manna doesn't just materialise miraculously, it appears to shapeshift even after it has been collected. Some gather a lot and others a little, but when they measure out what they have gathered, the amount is reconciled so that everyone has enough. Moses forbids anyone to stash away any of the food until morning, but he is roundly ignored in some quarters of the camp. By morning, the hoarded manna has become maggot-infested and putrid, and Moses is angry with the detractors. Success in the wilderness depends on everyone pulling together and following instructions. If people are already doing their own thing, he and Aaron have their work cut out to bring them to Canaan. Readers are told that every morning the people gather as much manna as they need. When the sun gets hot, the remaining manna melts. On day six, twice as much is collected. Whether this means that the Israelites gather twice the regular supply, or simply that what they have collected expands in size, is unclear. Once the double portion is ready, the leaders report back to Moses. He shares more news from God. Day seven is to be what he calls a Sabbath. Again, it's uncertain if this means anything to the Israelites who've yet to receive any laws about keeping Saturday special. Moses explains that the last day of the week needs to be kept holy, and so they should bake or boil what they need for today and leave the rest over for tomorrow. Sure enough, no manna appears on the ground the following day, and unlike on other days, the leftovers from yesterday haven't gone off. This doesn't stop some parties going out in search of fresh manna, and God appears exasperated. How long will Moses and his people fail to stick to the rules, he asks. The seventh day is a day of rest, he says. It is a gift from God, which is why he's given them two days supply of food on Friday, and this leans more towards the word manna, meaning gift. Dutifully, the Israelites stop looking for food that isn't there and take the rest of the day off. According to Exodus, manna looks like coriander seed and tastes like wafers made with honey. God tells Moses to keep some aside in a jar to preserve for future generations and to present it to God, how the book doesn't specify. Still, the jar eventually winds up in the Ark of the Covenant, a special wood and gold box that also holds the stone tablets on which are written the Ten Commandments. Numerous scholars over the ages have tried to identify what exactly manna is made of. Some believe it is a mushroom, others that it is honeydew, a waxy substance produced by insects. There are also suggestions that manna is resin from the tamarisk tree, or that manna has a miracle property of its own which explains why it rots at night, disintegrates in sunlight and never appears on Saturdays. They may have made it safely out of Africa. They may have food, but now the Israelites are thirsty. Here in the book of Exodus, the people set out from the desert of Sin, following wherever God leads them. They camp in one particular spot, another long forgotten place called Rephidim, and they desperately need water. With nothing to drink, they vent their frustration at Moses. Moses too is unhappy. He wishes that they would simply trust God and not test him by these outbursts of anger. Again, the people want to know why Moses didn't let them simply die in Egypt if the plan was for them, their children and their animals to walk to their death in the desert. 
Seriously worried that some of them might actually pick up rocks and hurl them at him, Moses begs God to throw him some kind of a lifeline. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook or send feedback to contact at holybible.com. Holy Bible.